This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, where did you get that black eye? Uh, the first rule is that I can't tell you where I got this black eye. Did you just go to your Shriners meeting again? <laughs> it's not that secretive, Dave. Shriner or Shiner? In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the machine. My name is Kyle. My name is David. And I'm the machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. For whatever reason, the movie is very obsessed with the year 1999. That is what we are moving through here this the season. Machine. Today, the machine. The machine. What did I say? The movie. Today, we're going to be watching the film Fight Club. Sweet. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on. Uh, all right. So, Dave, what is your history with this movie? This is one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> oh, very bold. You would say that as a man. <laughs> I would say that as uh, an angsty person. Um was this a theater movie for you? Did you see this yeah, in theaters? I saw this in theaters. I owned it, pretty sure, in VHS originally, owned it on DVD. Have uh, talked myself out of getting the Blu-ray because the DVD still worked and mm -hmm. just had uh, a check on iTunes to see how much it would cost to have it streaming. But it's, I mean, know. if you can't see Brad Pitt's abs in 4K HD, why even own this movie? It's not just his abs, Kyle. It's his hip bones. I, mean, I know. It's gorgeous. Okay, I was going to wait till later in the episode to bring this up, uh, and I, I don't know why we talk about my crushes so often on this podcast. Uh, there must be some innate thing that I need to talk about this stuff. I know that Brad Pitt is often looked at as being like the the perfect man, at least when we were growing up. It was like he was like shorthand for like beautiful person. Adonis. I was actually never a Brad Pitt guy. Like I was like, like whatever, fine. Like I could tell like why people thought he was attractive. The only movie I've ever found him like right up my alley was this movie, which says so much about me that I don't care to admit probably. You this like is the, the grit, dirty, man. grungy, yeah, you like, like the grit. smoking cut guy. I'm just like, yeah, okay, I can see that. I can see why. Who doesn't like who doesn't like to get it deep down and dirty, man? <laughs> welcome, welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. Machine after dark. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when radio was a thing? All right, let's keep going. Uh, one of your favorite movies, saw it in theaters, bought it in a bunch of different formats. What was it about this movie that was like, this is amazing? I mean, in 1999, I think that I was in a deeply introspective 
existential philosophical mode. Unlike now, now I'm just a calm, gentle soul. And this movie just hit every thematic, visual, acting, directorial. It just hit it across the board for me. I mean, I didn't know it then, but apparently I'm a huge David Fincher fan because Mm. I like pretty much everything he's ever made. Uh, If he touches it, I will probably like it, which is... Yeah, we'll talk about that. I... I'm a big David Fincher fan, too. Whatever his aesthetic is, however you want to define that, I'm kind of on board. I did not see this film in 1999. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the theater in my small town burnt down, Dave. What? And (laughs) I know. This is hilarious. I didn't see this film until circa 2002, somewhere around there in university. By the way, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago about there being like these three movies that were like these university films i think it was during the run lola run episode anyways the movie i couldn't think of was this movie this is the movie we we watched so many times through university before then i recall being on i want to say it was a band trip or something where we were on a bus for school and my friend brian magnus who was always like the up he was a great storyteller like he he was able to like make me bust my gut he was able to like infuse things that was like the story is true but you have greatly added embellished this story to Mm -hmm. make it funnier or better anyways he was saying have you seen this movie fight club i'm like well i've heard of it like i I don't know anything about it he proceeded to tell me the entire plot of the movie but what he liked to what he liked to focus on was the fact so there's this part right where what he does is he inserts cocks into movies i'm like what what do you mean it's like well he cuts out like one one frame and puts it in but then i was watching the movie and then during the credits there's like this little blip i was like what is that and so i reround it I push pause and it's a big cock. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Now I was super intrigued. Like, why well, I need to see this movie, but I can't justify my parents getting this movie for us to watch. They would probably say no. Who doesn't anyway, need to see a big cock in the middle of a film? Who doesn't? Fast forward 2002, watched the first time, like, lo and behold, like, oh yeah, that was a cock that just flashed in my face. And crazy how you can actually cut out something for literally one frame and still your brain registers. Oh, I just, I saw something. <laughs> At least at 24 frames a second. At least 24 frames per yeah. second. That's right. 60 hertz shit is garbage. Keep going. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that <laughs> was basically my, pre- like, I knew what the story was. I knew, like, the big twist of this movie because Brian told it to me in, in great detail about how the movie. And then I watched it during university and, and fell in love, too. And by this point, I'm pretty sure Fincher had already, well, I knew I'd seen Seven already. Oh, I'd seen The Game as the well. Game. I'd seen... Which and I Panic think Loki is a great movie. Amazing I think I love movie. the game. Yeah. Um, and Panic Room, I think, came up really close around 2002. 2002. Yeah. yeah. And so I saw that in theaters. So I was like, oh, like this is a director that I want to follow and see what's going on. Now, with that being said, it yes has this seems to be a recurring theme. It's probably been over a decade since I've seen this film. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've watched it more recently. You know, I do remember, speaking of Brad Pitt quickly, I, I don't know if we should keep this whole thing in the intro. I was not a big ba- Brad Pitt fan. As I typed up our little essay for this episode, it turns yeah. out I am a Brad Pitt fan, but uh, I'm pretty sure I watched this movie because of Ed Norton. And uh, Oh, yeah, 100%. Because I was a big... There was, there was something about it, like growing up, Brad Pitt was just a very different actor than what I think he's perceived as now. Yeah. He was that pretty boy. He was trying to be like a romantic, dramatic lead. And I don't know if it really fit him. I think he's actually found his like calling in his like 40s and into his 50s now, where it's like, oh no, he's figured out his groove and what he actually excels in. Grit and comedy, surprisingly. Oh yeah, like yeah. he's very funny. 
the way that he drags, like my favorite thing was this last award season where he basically got best supporting actor for at every major award show, including the Oscars. Every acceptance speech, he would get up here and like, let me just give a roast to Quentin Tarantino, to Margot Robbie, to Leonardo DiCaprio. And like that was his acceptance speech. I'm like, I can see you doing this <laughs> for, for longer term. Plus, I mean, as a lot of people will say, what he has done with his own production company, try to push out emerging voices, uh, basically like people of color, that kind of stuff. Like he's really a big champion of, of those types of filmmakers. And I think that's something to be respected. Let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll have watched Fight Club and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Hi, everyone. Just Kyle here again. Let you know about some of our sponsors who help make this show possible. You know, someone should probably just punch me in the face right now because I, I feel about that good. I've had about two hours of sleep, but the show must go on, mustn't it, folks? I look forward to the rest of my day where I can barely string two words together, or as they like to call it in my house, Friday. So first and foremost, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This week, we're also brought to you by ATB, and I want to talk to you about a new initiative from our friends at ATB called ATB Goodness Grows. Hashtag ATB Goodness Grows is an initiative that motivates Albertans to bring joyful moments to others. We're all adjusting to being disconnected from the places, people, and experiences we love, so making someone laugh or bringing a smile to their day has never been more needed or more powerful. From live streams connecting business owners to new and fun ways to celebrate things like Father's Day, ATB hopes to inspire Albertans to keep the goodness growing. To find out more or to get involved, visit atb.com slash COVID-19 slash community. You sure you don't have COVID? Are you okay? Well, I just ate dinner, like a lunch quickly <laughs> and now it's like all acid refluxing up here with me. Dave, honestly, I was a little bit worried because I was like, oh, this is probably going to be one of those movies I return to and be like, why did I ever like this movie? Spoiler alert, I think there's a lot to talk about and I'm very excited to talk about this movie. Let's do this. What are your just initial overall non-spoilery thoughts on the movie Fight Club? Awesome. Classic. We'll watch again. Uh, top to bottom. I didn't take a single note because I got entirely enwrapped in watching for the one millionth time. I know. And even knowing and expecting what will happen next, I'm still engaged in it. I mean, that tells me everything about a movie, at least speaking how it speaks to me. I was uh, enamored with it. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, definitely. Like I mentioned this, I think a few weeks ago too, about how when I have no urge to actually look at my phone, I'm just like, I'm watching this movie and I'm engrossed by it. I can tell that that's something that's working on me. I noticed this time on this rewatch, 
it breaks a lot of rules that you're not supposed to use in filmmaking. And yet it really works here. Uh, Cause I think there's a broader point that they're trying to make me basically meaning narrator and unreliable protagonist are kind of the two big ones that people like don't use that in your uh, filmmaking. It works in novels and books, but it doesn't really work in filmmaking because of the different formats. But because I think the thesis of this movie and what it's trying to say, it really does add up to when you get to that uh, finale where it's like, boy, does that hit you like a ton of bricks? I will say as well that I think this is a movie kind of like the matrix. And there, there's probably a better example out there where there is a huge piece of the fandom around this movie that I think only looks at the text and not the subtext. And then kind of puts their personality around that because I don't think that the character that Brad Pitt is playing, Mr. Tyler Durden, is a cool character. I think he, you think he is as you are introduced to him, and then you slowly learn over time, oh, this is like a bad dude and not a good guy at all. And I think that the people who just look at the text are like, Tyler is cool, I'm going to live by his life philosophy, and like that's what I'm going to do with my life. When the movie itself is saying, don't, because his, his philosophy is stupid. I don't know if you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that if you, pressed pause or stop halfway through this movie, you think that Tyler Durden is almost a nihilistic, Buddhistic representation of counterculture. Right. Um, but if you leave the theater watching this movie and you think that becoming uh, Tyler Durden in its entirety is still a positive thing, then there's something wrong with you because, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're likely a terrorist in, in a very broad way. <laughs> sense no. of that word, right? It's, Maybe very, yeah, very obviously a terrorist. Yeah. yeah. And it, well, I, you know, that, that word has taken on certain tones in, in the last mm -hmm. uh, 20 years. But I think there's so much intent to... Are we not allowed to talk about what happens in this movie? This is frustrating. We're going to do, we're, we're do that after. And this rewatch, I really enjoyed watching everybody interplay with each other with the knowledge of what was going to happen and noticing little things like Helena Bonham Carter's character... Um, how she, she is Marla, Marla Singer. Marla Singer. How Marla Singer is interacting with the world. When I first watched it, I thought she was just an insane person. Right. And uh, now I watch it and I'm like, she's like pretty normal other than being distressed. How do I make you distressed? Around what's happening <laughs> and mm -hmm. reacting. And it's fascinating, those little nuances, but how intentional everything is. Even after watching it, 15, 20, 200 times, uh, I keep catching little things that draw my interest into it. So if you're watching this movie and all you see is a really cut, handsome dude miming Bruce Lee and looking cool in uh, old beat up polyester Hawaiian shirts, then uh, you need to seek psychiatric help. You've just described my exact type. That is not what this movie's about. I, I think you're right. And th this is a hard movie to talk about without spoiling it. So we're going to get into that. But, but first, we're going to go through some backstory here. Which is this, Fight Club was released on October 15th, 1999. The, there was a few other films released that day, but the major one is probably The Straight Story, written by John Roach and Mary Sweeney, directed by David Lynch, and starring Richard Farnsworth, Sissy Spacek, and Harry Dean Stanton. Fight Club is currently rated 8.8 .8 on IMDb, 66 on Metacritic, and over on Rotten Tomatoes, based on 173 critics, it's at 79%. And with 1,093,666 users, it's rated 96%. 
you know, so I think fun. there is definitely a huge gap here between what the critics thought and what I think audiences thought about this movie. You know, I, just, I had this thought that we should uh, back check all the movies we've done and look at how many user comments there are per movie. I might have brought this up earlier, but over mm-hmm. a million says a lot more than 96%. That is a lot of impassioned people right. <laughs> getting on and logging in and writing messages. It's fascinating. Well, that means that yeah, a, a vast majority of those are rating it over 90%, like it, just to get it it's that crazy. high, right? It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it on Google Play or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it via the Stars app. Its budget was $63 million. It opened to $11 million. Domestically, it would make $37. Internationally, $64. So at total, it came to $101 million, which is $157 million with inflation, which means that it was, it definitely wasn't a flop, but it wasn't like a runaway success either. Although with fancy Hollywood accounting, everything doesn't make money so that they can write things off. Anyways, that's a discussion for another time. This might be my favorite plot description on IMDb. An insomniac office worker and a devil-may-care soap maker from an underground fight club that evolves into something much, much more. <laughs> That's the description of this movie. It's terrible, which but great. Yeah. It's not a great way to describe what this movie is about. But anyways, yeah. it stars Edward Norton as the narrator, Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden, and Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer. Those actors. Dave does something really great for us because over on our Patreon page, he writes up a really nice, uh, let's call it an essay on the actors and what they were doing at the time, as well as the director, where they were at in their career. Any big things you found out about any of these actors? I don't know. I think we mentioned in the intro. I, I found out that I'm apparently a big Brad Pitt fan, even though I've spent a lot of my adult life talking shit about him and his acting ability. I look forward to talking shit about you in my adulthood. Looking at his filmography, I'm like, I'm, I pretty much have paid money for all of these things. <laughs> and this might just be the surface sort of Googleable thing, but like Angelina Jolie, he just seems like he's a nice guy, which is really fucked up. I know that there's some gossip about where he's at right now with his life, with, I don't know, addiction and breaking out mm. with Angelina, but I'll skip that because I don't have any information on it on my write-up. Ed Norton was interesting because I always think of Ed Norton as this great actor, but then I always think of him as having lost his way over the last 10, 15 years. But when I... I, I It's kind of mean, but there's no, no other way to say this. I really feel like he came onto the scene really strongly because it was like primal fear. He won an Oscar for his this, first movie. I don't think he won an Oscar, did he? Yeah, he won I mean, it for Primal Fear for Supporting Actor. Unless oh, really? I read okay. that wrong, pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Regardless, Primal Fear, there's this movie, and there's another one I'm thinking of. Oh, he won a Golden Globe, you're right. Okay. He was so, nominated for the Oscar. Basically, nothing. <laughs> nah, garbage. Primal Fear, this movie, and there's something else that I'm... I'm American I'm History over- X. American History X, yes, that's exactly what it is. So there's these three uh, very well-respected movies, some of them even made a lot of money, and then I don't think... He's ever really gotten to that degree ever again. Well, here's the interesting thing about him. If you look at his movie list, he's actually in more reasonable movies than I remembered him in. You know, so he's got this kind of crap beginning of 2000. He's in a lot of movies, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. The score might stand out and that's not very good. 
Um, he was apparently in Kingdom of Heaven, which is also not a good movie, and The Illusionist, which I thought was subpar prestige. And of course, he was the Hulk. Yeah. But turns out that the reputation is that he's kind of a dick. Appar- like, not a person, yeah. but he's apparently very hard to work with because he tries to rewrite everything. Um, mm. And he thinks he knows better than everybody else. And so whatever it was that gives him this ability to be a great actor is apparently also arresting him from uh, widespread acclaim. And in an industry like Hollywood, uh, you got to appeal to the masses. Otherwise, you don't appear anywhere anymore. You don't go anything. Yeah. And they just say, Helena Bonham Carter. I actually really like Helena Bonham Carter. I think she should be more things. Because she was in Sweet Yeah, I liked a lot of the Tim Burton stuff. So she was... In those, this movie was written by Jim Ools or Alls, based on the novel by Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, just to briefly go over his work, this was his first produced screenplay, and he would go on to write things like Sweet Talk and Jumper, and apparently the documentary Idiot Savant, The Savage Life of Ryan Leone is the next thing on his list. So I don't really have a lot to say, although Jumper is not a great movie, but I think that's mostly the actors that they cast in it. It's that's Anakin. Let's not, yeah, we shouldn't go back to. And then we've talked about David Fincher a little bit, right? Musical music video director, a lot of Rick Springfield, Madonna, and Paula Abdul. If you scroll through his uh, resume quickly, before this, he would have made Alien Three, Seven, and the Game. I've already talked about how I like the game a lot. I'll also go to bat. This is an unpopular opinion. I think Alien 3 is not as bad as people make it out to yes, be. Yes, I agree with you. It's the thing n- about- here's the thing. It's not a good alien movie, but it's a good science fiction horror movie, I right. think. Right. Other than Alien Doc. But you know what's interesting yeah, is, yeah. Uh, reading up quickly on that, apparently Dave Fincher has, Dave Fincher has uh, disassociated himself with that project yes. because uh, it says that there was so much production company involvement, there are nine credited screenwriters for that movie. Oh yeah, it's, it's crazy. That's, that's yeah. a mess, dude. So mm-hmm. considering what he was working with, that's a beautiful movie. <laughs> uh, but everything else he's touched is, is pretty much yeah. cool. So after this, let's just go through them quickly. We have Panic Room, which I think is a solid thriller. Great movie. Zodiac, which I think is vastly underappreciated. I think that's a brilliant, great movie. Uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I think is just okay. It's not great. I love The Social Network. I think The Social Network is great. Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is a pretty decent adaptation. And then Gone Girl, which I was a big fan of Gone Girl. There's also the upcoming Netflix movie, Mank, which should be out actually in the next couple months. He also has this reputation, like Ed Norton, of being... Uh, kind of difficult to work with. Yeah, they're talking about average of 50 to 70 takes per scene. And uh, mm. he's been quoted as saying he doesn't want people to act in- intuitively or with instinct. He's like, you need to just do it my way. And we're going right. to do it so many, way- like so many times until you get exactly how I've been envisioning it. And so I wrote this up, Kyle, just to offend you, is uh, he's been described as an auteur. And we can oh, get no. into a debate about that. Auteur is Kyle's safe word. We should bring him back up if we ever talk about Stanley Kubrick, because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stories about him and how he liked to do like 80 takes of, of scenes over and over and over again. And then very, would very famously like take the second or third one. Well, <laughs> but yeah, just had them go through it like multiple, multiple times. It's editing. There is a great YouTube channel, or I like the YouTube channel called The Nerd Writer. And uh, he did one on, on David Fincher once. And ever since he did it, I cannot not notice this in every David Fincher movie, which is the way that he moves his camera, mm. which is that it's always perpendicular, or I, often, I shouldn't say every single time, but often basically perpendicular with the actor's eyes. So if they stand up, it follows them and then sits down 
and then pushes in or if they're walking towards the camera it's tracking backwards but always level with their eyes and it's actually a little bit different than what other people usually film with like it very much uh, maneuvers the way the protagonist is acting in the scene so you always feel like you're moving with that actor okay well that is kind of some background here so let's get into spoilers we're in full spoiler mode here so Tyler Durden is not a real character, Dave. He is a made-up figment of the imagination in the narrator's head, which I think is also a fascinating thing that he's called the narrator. That is the big reveal. That is the big twist of this film. When you first saw that, was that like the mind-blowing thing? That's like, oh, wait, he's just a figment of this guy's imagination? Or did you catch on earlier into the film? I mean, I don't specifically remember whether I was keying into it, but I definitely felt my face melt. I think the way it's building up to it, he's giving you clues. Like oh, Dave through Ventures the entire thing, he's giving script. you cues, yeah. But he'll never pick up on them without the context of where the story's supposed to be going. But that hotel room scene where he starts blinking and they actually rebuild each of his moments by himself, <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. And the, you know, in this 200th time I've rewatched it, it's fun watching it, imagining. Again, so for example, I noticed uh, Mario the Singer's reaction to him in every scene now. It's like a woman standing in front of a schizophrenic, multiple personality disorder person. And so she's reacting to this person. She's not even her own character in the sense that she can't be herself around him. He's like, she's, you know, just had this crazy animal sex, walks downstairs and he's like a different human being telling her, go fuck herself. Right. And you're like, of course she's going to look like an insane person because what are you supposed to do in that situation? Like, Well, especially when you start talking basically about yourself in the third person. Like he is introducing himself actually as Tyler Durden to her. Yeah. He's like, breakdown. Tyler's not here. And she's like, what are you talking about? Tyler's not here. Right. She was amazing. That scene too, where you see the panic and that realization that this is well beyond the insanity she was willing to endure uh, for yeah. that relationship. She has this great look on her face where it's just like soul crushing. It was, uh, it was kind of fun to watch that. I brought this up at kind of near the beginning about, you know, text versus subtext. For you, what is this movie trying to communicate? So this time in watching it, I'm getting sick of the phrase toxic masculinity, but there's certainly the embodiment of all the pressures of what it's supposed to be like to be, you know, a primal warrior man. And they do that subversive thing where they're making fun of it. At the same time, they're in, you know, uh, inhibiting the role. Mm -hmm. This is describing the psychology of cults. And I remember I was talking to my psychiatrist about a video I watched about fake martial arts. I don't know if I've told you about this, but there's this whole thing about fake martial arts where uh, post Bruce Lee, these schools would open up and these so-called masters would like wave their hands in the air and their students will all fall down because of their powerful forces. But it got to the point where I think in the early mid 80s, these masters would then go out and challenge real fighters, utterly convinced that they actually had these secret powers. And they their videos... And they were, I think you have told me about this before, but was it that they knew they were bullshitty, but then no, through they, this act of will that they convinced themselves they could, or was it like they always thought they could and then fully that's convinced a themselves? That's question. Yeah. I mean, I think probably the first proponents were probably mm-hmm. scam artists just to get money in these fake schools. But by the time they're going to pick out fights with real people, they're utterly convinced they can do this. But what mm-hmm. stuck out to me in those videos was uh, they've built schools. People follow them in spite of them getting their ass handed to them. 
And if you look at the videos of their students, they are broken people. None of them look healthy. Those sound like my kind of people. And so when I brought it up with my psychiatrist, he said uh, one of the interesting sort of dynamics in cults is that when a person is struggling psychologically, they want to tie themselves with a single word, concept, or person and then define their own personality to it, Trump supporters. And so they um, go out and they can't allow themselves to be wrong. And whatever this concept, person, or uh, you know, movement, Trump supporters, says, they have to essentially religiously uh, adhere to it. And this movie shows us that. I mean, at the beginning, like I said, if we turn this movie off in halfway point, Brad Pitt's character is almost like this uh, warrior monk. He's like, yeah, I, I take a lot of things from that, right? Like this anti-capitalist thing, materialism, you know, all these things that feel like they're poisoning us. And then to get this primal thing where it's like, I want you to hit me in the face as hard as you can. And you're just like, what mm -hmm. the fuck is going on? So there's an excitement to that. It uh, swells because his little army are, again, ironically, the sheep that he calls the office workers, right? They will do anything that Tyler Durden says, and it eventually becomes domestic terrorism. I love it, because it's uh, making fun of it. Now, when I was 22, did I like the first part or the second half? I don't know. I mean, I don't remember. I want to believe I was wise enough to separate those two things, but self-harm and all this, that, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have been attracted to both, both the... Uh, the bad and the good of this movie. I like to believe, though, that I, I'm an intelligent, academically trained, a nuanced human being uh, who is above it all. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a few things I want to pick up from that. Uh, you, you said a lot there. Uh, all of the bullshit, but no. I, I, um, so I want to talk about the, yeah, that toxic masculinity thing a bit, because I think that really is where this film starts at. That is where it, it, it begins, and I really want to put our mindsets back into 1999 because I just do not feel that men were in that mind space yet of being like, we are allowed to show our feelings right? to the degree that I feel like in the year 2020, men can and are kind of expected to and that we feel is much more mentally helpful. The narrator or Edward Norton's character, his first thing he's doing is going to the self-help groups so that he can cry. That is, he's going there so he can actually feel something because, yes, society is beating him down and he feels like he's just this cog in the machine and he needs something to express himself. I think how funny this is, like before social media and stuff like that, that this is, I think, something that people are still struggling with, but we just would not have been able to communicate effectively. Like, I need some way to feel like I am a human being. And that for him is pretending that he has disease and going and being able to cry with other men. And actually having that touch. But I think that what he discovers is that there's actually more help that he needs. Because uh, this is the, the thing of, with, with addicts. And this is going to sound more negative than what I mean it to be. You'll probably have more insight into this than I do. Uh, with addictive personalities, you, if you stop doing something, you still fill that hole with something else. Like you are constantly trying to make, make peace with that. So when he feels like... He's gotten to a certain point and he's not getting that release that he needs. Like, he, I think he's projecting onto the Marla character like, well, you're coming here, too. And now I can't come to these places. You're faking. And, like yeah. he's projecting. Right. Yeah. So now I need something else, which then basically goes into like the fight club thing of like, I feel because I am touching people and 
you know, expending this and I'm angry and I just need some way to express this. And it's in a not very healthy way, but it's still making him feel alive in the person that they're touching other people and that they're communicating. There's this communal aspect to it. And I will say this, and I'm sure Chuck Palahniuk would actually disagree with me, <laughs> the original writer of this novel. I feel there is a gay subtext of this that is very obvious while watching this movie. Here we go with the gay again. Uh, that is never explicitly gone into, but it, it is there. Like there is something going on there between him and Tyler. There's more than just like, oh, he's a friend and I've made him up in my head. Uh, he wouldn't disagree with you because he's gay. Oh, I didn't know that. I had ah, no idea about blew that. Blew your mind. Yeah. I did blow my mind. I didn't yeah. actually know that. Okay, he came interesting. Out in the two thousands, after mm. this movie was uh, released, gotcha. I, the only thing that I would disagree, if that's the word is that I think the implication is that Tyler Durden exists well before this. I think that the, I right, mean, the house yeah, yeah. is already there. His alter ego's already got this sort of set up life. He's already traveling with soap. Like there's a lot of duality already, even from the point that you meet Tyler, like you see Tyler sort of appearing in some of the uh, build up scenes to their actual uh, first date on the plane. And uh, and by the end, you realize, I mean, who knows how many personalities he actually has the narrator, yeah. but that uh, this one hour of sleep a night, you know, myth. I never sleep, but I do dream of electric sheep. Would give him the opportunity to live, you know, like even the idea of creating a terror cell, fight club, being a maitre d', having a day job, traveling around the States, starting all of these chapters. I mean, there are so many different layers in which I don't think that it necessarily comes out of the uh, addict recovery sort of uh, thing. I I agree with you that, you know, this displacement and addict mindset of, uh, yeah, I guess the metaphor is often filling a hole or filling a gap. Mm -hmm. That one book I read was talking about um, in a different way, sort of uh, running from fear or being in denial. So instead of confronting what it is that's actually harming you, you go and drink, use drugs, overeat, have too much sex, or in this case, go to support groups and lie to people to get the ability to presumably cry. I also agree in the 90s for the movie we just watched, Boys Don't Cry. Um, yeah. There's a strong theme in this concept of what it means to be a man that comes out of the boomer generation. Right. That comes out of historic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure historical masculinity because, you know, as we know or presume the idea of a man has evolved actually through different civilizations. It's not always been held with such testicular rigor. <laughs> uh, but certainly, Put that on a shirt, please. Uh, certainly by the end of the 90s, the world I grew up in, uh, yeah, if you cry, someone punches you in the face and calls you a girl, a homosexual, a fucking dog, whatever it is, like mm -hmm. you're just not allowed to do that. That pressure is there for sure. And we do see, as we've talked about a lot this year, I think that cultural boiling point's about to happen where, uh, I don't know if it's Gen X or Millennials, people are just sick of it. People are just well, sick of it. Well, this would have been Gen X that they were talking about yeah. in this story for sure at that time. I think it's so fascinating to watch this movie in the year 2020 with the U.S. election that is mere weeks away as this episode gets released. With that same type of fervor and that same type of devotion that Tyler Durden has and and builds up around him that Trump has and built up around him. But I also thought there was a similarity in just the idea of Tyler Durden of creating this, I'll call it like an avatar for yourself and being able to live like your true life through that character, being able to 
you know, actually be the person you want to be. Uh, he makes up in his head and is able to actually act on it. I don't see how that's not what social media is in, in very many ways where, yeah, you can even attach your real name to it and yet are still able to lash out, be vicious. And that might not actually be who you really are in real life, but that's how it gets uh, unleashed uh, in the online sphere so many times. Uh, I, th I think there is a similarity there that, of course, this book was not <laughs> intended to emulate, but I think that, that that's an evolution of that of that idea. I don't know. I mean, I think what's intelligent to me standing out like in the same vein is that think of the irony of them complaining about materialism and advertising. You, you'll notice that all of the uh, ads were of men's naked bodies and not your traditional guest models. Mm -hmm. They aren't blaming sort yeah. of the... Uh, <laughs> Except for Brad Pitt. Like no one is like, yeah, like well, a cut, the, like bigger. Brad Pitt and then all of the models for the arm, whatever it was, I can't remember, Guess or Armani, but it was all yeah. men's butts and abs and all this stuff. And so I think it's intentional that he... I used to think that it was hypocritical that in the movie, they would point at an ad and say, this is bullshit. And then Brad would take off his shirt and you're like, know, they have yeah. the exact same body. But I think but, now I read it as intentional because exactly like you're saying, I think Brad Pitt is himself a product of this marketing thing that's infecting Ed Norton's, the narrator's brain, which is an effigy of what he's supposed to be like, even though he is not like that. Again, I, I mean, who knows? He's insane. So it's like, yeah, I yeah. don't know what he's like. He doesn't want to be like that because I mean, he does fight back, right? Like he understands like, uh, this is actually not the way I want to go to. Deep in my subconscious, I guess I've created this person that does want to tear things down. I, I've never been like the revolutionary person. I know. Shocking uh, uh, confession I'm making here on the podcast. But like, I love when the funniest things they say, right? At the very beginning, he's talking about like furnishing his apartment and being caught yeah, up in like yeah. the consumption of the world. It's like, what dining set defines me as a person, right? You know, yeah. you get into that stupid mentality. Like, not that I've ever done it, but I've been in the same room with people like planning weddings and stuff. It's like, what color defines us as a couple? I'm like, who Everybody cares? Everybody does it. Everybody like, does. Well, podcasters do it with your microphones and your computers. Right. I mean, I'm just saying that there's the culture that we live in has these things that everyone does. But really, when you pull back, it's like, oh, this is stupid. Like, no one really cares about this stuff. And everyone's trying desperately to be like in the moment. But then Tyler Durden, and I'm sorry to get stuck on this like <laughs> high horse I'm on basically comes off as being one of those people that I only want to talk to for 20 seconds, which is like, wake up, sheeple. He throws out these epithets and these like stupid, like little like Taoist Buddhism things. There's like, I don't know, like you're, you're also going to go blow up a building. So like how, well, that's, how that's co cohesive is this strategy that you have? He starts off as what's the character in mystery men, the Phoenix, right? Right. Yeah, the yeah. things you own end up owning you. And this is actually a profound concept in our world. Maybe it's, the, I, again, we haven't read the book, but maybe the implication is that these um, wholesome thoughts, and wholesome is a broad term meaning, you know, you can't just make yourself happy all the time because then you're insane too. I mean, people who only see right. uh, optimism are generally uh, certifiable as well. Th there needs to be a balance. Right. There's an you do. You cannot, yeah, you can't stay happy all the time. Conversely, you can't stay sad all the time either. I think there has to be that balance of forces. Right. A manic and a depressed, and you can do both and be bipolar, mm -hmm. but we won't get into DSM because I don't understand that either. But I think- um, But BDSM, I am all about. <laughs> I've, I've heard that about you. I think at the beginning, there's a, almost a naivety to uh, Tyler Durden's thing, a uh, character, mm -hmm. where it's like- I agree. 
he's like this, yeah, he's this rebellious idea. I mean, I have the, those thoughts all the time. As you know, I express them vocally a lot about how, you know, we, we need to be different and everything we're doing is leading us into hell and we're seeing the apocalypse uh, and capitalism is poisoning us and all this kind of shit. But yeah, I this think is a the, very anti-capitalist movie at the end of the day, yes. And I think the fascinating thing is, I think the writer is showing us that if you project that into unrestrained action, you end up killing and destroying everything around you, which is where that subtext comes in. I do have some of the quotes written down, which is like, maybe there's a possibility that God doesn't like you. You know what I mean? Like, maybe <laughs> your life is bad because God doesn't like you, or you can just make up what you find meaningful in your life and pursue that. Just to be clear, I don't like you either. I think that's fascinating, right? It's like, once you lose that sense of connection and hope with the rest of the world, then you become this cult member where you will take on a new God. And in this case, it's the persona of Tyler Durden, who's insane, right? Well, I think, I think also what this points to, there is another book that I read called The Death of Expertise. And what that author, Tom Nichols, purports, we have spent the last, at bare minimum, 30 years, but probably even longer than that, being like, hey, Western culture, you're an individual and you pursue what you want and what you think you need to do and achieve is the right thing. But what that is kind of conversely done is make a bunch of narcissists out of all of us. Because now it's like, well, whatever I think is right. I don't care what you think or how you feel or how this even impacts you. It doesn't matter. It matters what I think and what I feel. So fuck you. And you think as such, what's interesting about this movie is that as much as we push towards that of being like, you're your own person and you lead your own life and you do what you want to do. I honestly think that there's more of people that just want to be led, that just want to have someone tell them what to do so they can just do it and they understand where their place in society is. And I like, I'm not even going to get into the political argument of that, but just you can see that in this movie, which is Tyler Durden is kind of saying that it's like, do what you want to do, live your life, but also do exactly what I say or else I'm going to kill you. Or we'll have, his, uh, his flunkies on the police department castrate you. Like that authoritarian rule revels in this. It's like, you're your own person and you get to do what you want to do, but actually just do what I want to do. It's such a great parallel to the office culture he's escaping from, isn't it? I mean, right. I, 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 yeah, I don't know if we're reading too much into the intent. Uh, I've never met Chuck. Right. Uh, I've never read the book. Chuck E.P., yeah. Yeah, you know, you know how we do. But I think... You know, having watched this movie so many times and uh, been involved in it so much, I can't help but think that that's the point. We we look at the uh, surface level, which is like it's slick, and there's a bit of funniness into it, and just a tad of just a tad of misogyny thrown into it. But underneath all of that is like actually what we're trying to communicate here is much more than what is just on the surface of this movie. Honestly, I mean, other than the fact of uh, not having any real the, uh, you know we could get into debate of marla singer but i'm not even sure there's misogyny in it to be honest with you uh, when i look at this movie i think it's just within the headspace of a entirely disconnected broken man and certainly through that lens there's a problem but you know the female characters around it whether it's marla singer or even chloe and the cancer group or whatever mm. there's actually quite a lot of empathy you know, the first time you watch it, there's a comedic beat where she's begging people to have sex with her. But like, as you w watch it over and over again, I mean, th to even put that in the scene, to humanize the suffering, it's not just images of Ed Norton showing up 
at these things and taking advantage of people. But you know, all of the people in here, all of the victims of these diseases are depicted as real human beings. I mean, you would mm -hmm. think that, that they weren't even extras uh, that are just milling around the room. It's done uh, meticulously and I think with purpose. And great performance by Meatloaf of all people. Like, I love it. It's, I loved it's it. wild, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, certainly you could talk about the language, particularly at the beginning, but there's yes, that yeah. toxicity of that language. A, was way more normal in the 90s for better, for worse, clearly for worse. But B, I think also speaks to uh, Tyler Durden's brain about how mm -hmm. he talks to himself, right? And I think it plays more on this... Uh, tension of what it means to be a man. I mean, I still struggle with that. I don't, I don't know what that means. Yeah, right? I mean, I think the idea of what a man is and, and how you fit into this world is, as you said, always evolving anyways, but much more so even in the last five years as it's kind of ramped up and being constantly changing these these things we've just taken for granted is is not things that you can take for granted anymore. And I, I, personally, I think it is actually pushing more into the positive end of things, but that that's still puts your your you're not your feet are not on cement anymore they're in sand so it's like constantly moving and and falling and being like is this the right way for me what this points to and i think this is, is a person problem but oftentimes a male problem too of just feeling so incredibly alone even though you're surrounded by multiple people i think that comes up over and over again in this film where the edward norton character keeps having real people surround him but he feels like he's the only person and that he can't really express himself and be his true self. Even when he creates his own fake identity person, he still feels alone, even with Tyler Durden in the same same household. So I want to go through some other quotes because we're running long here. Number one, this is the, one of the major quotes that I was going to say and bring up, going back to the point of, I think that there is maybe a gay subtext here, which is the conversation they have with each other in the bathroom while Tyler Durden is uh, bathing himself. And uh, the narrator says, I can't get married. I'm a 30-year-old boy. And then Tyler Durden says, we're a generation of men raised by women. I'm starting to wonder if another woman is what we really need. It's, it's not subtle. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do, you, what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, I think one of the interesting themes that have come out of not just Boomer to Gen X, but just parenting in general is the ever-shifting role we have on each other, like the influence we have on each other. So the boomer generation is this, at least by stereotype, man disappearing to work, right. woman housewife, Whoa. and even the concept of presumably raising your child is much a different definition than what it means today. Uh, and so for myself growing up in that generation, I don't have parents that coddle me. I have parents that often uh, resentfully support me, uh, which in hindsight was a grand blessing because there are a lot of parents that couldn't even do that, right? And so that figurehead between the parental group and the child tended to be the woman. But this creates this weird disconnect for male role models, I think, of that generation. But the broader spectrum, which I think is fascinating, is out of the Tyler Durden speech, we got a generation of, uh, what do you call them? Helicopter parents. So mm -hmm. all of the people embittered by this blaming that their parents were never in their lives became too ever present in their children's right. lives. And there was this middle generation, I don't know if they're millennials or Ys or Zs, who gives a fuck? They feel entitled to something, you know? They feel like they're snowflakes. They feel like they're supposed to get more and be enriched. Because to they've always degree. been given more, right? Right. Uh, and now raising Emerson, 
we are finding us ourselves surrounded by still a little bit of that, but there's a new evolution of people trying to find a new balance between those two things. Yeah, certainly, at least in my mind, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I want to be here, and we are all together all the time, but I also am very mindful that when I get Emerson in trouble, it's like, you need to do this yourself. Like, I'll stand here and support you, but I'm not doing your homework for you. I'm not going to mm -hmm. build this Lego for you. Because if you just expect to say, do this and I show up and do it, then what the fuck are you preparing yourself for in life, right? right? Yeah, they're alliance, but certainly uh, that one stuck out to me too. I, I think it's got a lot of layers, um, but learning that Chuck uh, came out, I think it's definitely a strong line uh, that he snuck in there. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of both, right? It's, it's that Freddie that Mercury comment. thing. You know, you look back at Queen... And after he came out, you realize like all his lyrics, he's singing about being gay, but he knows that it's not <laughs> well, accepted well, it's in like, that era, right? So he- It's like he Liberati, mixes. who you could tell was gay from 50 feet away and people back then were like, he just needs a good woman to settle yeah. down with. I'm George like, Michael right, too, like, right? You watch all George yeah. Michael's videos and he's got a 50-50 split of Victoria's Secret's models and naked men. And you're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe- Maybe, just I don't know. <laughs> But that's the struggle of uh, closet culture. I think the other thing, this is, again, a Generation X thing, uh, which I think you technically are an old Generation X yeah. or young Generation X, I uh, think, whatever. technically, yeah. right? Because I'm an old millennial. I think that makes you a young Generation X, regardless. Isn't there a Y? Was there no Y? Yeah, but there's Y. It's Y after millennial. We, we skipped a letter oh, for millennials. That's weird. And now there's Generation Z. Anyways. I'm still Generation Pepsi. The other quote I just needed to mention was, we're the middle children of history, no war or Great Depression, our lives are the Great Depression. I could start a new war if you'd like. I do think that is a Generation X feeling. Like you look at that in a lot of literature, there's this, uh, oh gosh, Douglas Copeland is a Canadian writer who wrote about Generation X. He's the guy who coined the term Generation X. And a lot of his novels are about that feeling of like, we're kind of this middle generation that no one cares about and that ultimately has actually turned out to be true which is like generation x is really never in the equation right now it's a war against boomers and millennials and younger and the generation x generation is kind of just like shuffled off to the side it's interesting i think this theme in different terms has come up in all the movies you watch this year which is i don't think it's a middle child syndrome although i can understand how that metaphor works i think it's we had a perfect, the so-called projection of a perfect society where nobody actually had to worry about anything and that right. boredom and disconnect from struggle and purpose. And that uh, was really a 90s thing, right? Like as soon as the Berlin Wall fell down, yes, there was like those like flash wars in the, of course. in the Gulf and stuff, but we could kind of disassociate ourselves from that a little bit because it only lasted for a few months. But really, like when you think about the, the and I guess I had these rose colored glasses because I was a kid at the time. So I was not necessarily looking at international affairs, but there was a good, a, a, at least a good six or seven year period there where it was just like, yeah, like whatever the world, like nothing terrible is happening to me. So it's easy to be like this, these halcyon days of old. And then the 2000s hit and like, boy, have, have, have shit hit the fan since then. Well, I don't think it was because you were young. I think it's because we're North American. And I think that True. Yeah. the cultural wall, I mean, we talked about the Berlin Wall a lot this year, but I think the cultural wall was just being tied to America. And America at that time had enough cultural energy to shut the rest of the world out. You talk to anybody who's living in Africa or the Balkans sure. or anywhere in the Middle East, there has not yet been this lull of beautiful, uh, halcyon quiet, as you put it. Like It just never has happened yet. Right. 
But we got to live in this bubble until uh, September 11th when uh, they broke that bubble. And the, whatever the conspiracy or the actions irrelevant, uh, then it became real because it came onto our uh, zeitgeist. And we haven't been able to, well, I, recover is an unfair word because it presumes that we were better off before, but we certainly right. have changed uh, and become so global. And, you know, looking at all these celebrity bios, every single one of them is somehow trying to save the world with their money. They're all over Africa, the Middle East, trying to combat environmentalism, global hunger. I don't think that that's necessarily as prominent pre-2001. It's just something where we've had to become aware that we are not the only people on the earth. Uh, to your earlier mm -hmm. point, you know, there's that post-war glory that uh, we're all special snowflakes and nothing that's happening anywhere else in the world matters because, uh, you know, I've got a 2,000 square foot house on 10 acres and a Mercedes Benz or Rolls Royce and, you know, I'm fucking good. Were you ever into culture freaking or like, did you read Adbusters magazine or anything like that at all? Does that Ad, ring a bell? Adbusters magazine rings. What's culture freaking? What, what do you mean? That's kind of what they support. I, I might be using the wrong word now that you called me out on that. They called it something social culture jamming. Sorry. They called it culture, culture jamming. Do huh. you wanted to do these like random acts of subversion, whether it was like, like punk rock. Kind of like the Banksy yeah. thing, right? Like po yeah. posting up a, fake poster or something like that yep. or you know cutting off the the cord of a phone booth or something just like these little mini acts of rebellion to be like culture like f you like we're not gonna like be prescribed a certain way that we're supposed to act sort of thing and i was kind of all about that never did any of it i have to be very like <laughs> i was too much of a soy boy beta cack to be like i can do any of this but i liked reading up about it and i subscribed to the magazine for a bit just to read up on what they were talking about but this is what that movie kind of reminded me of because that's kind of what it starts off as and it very much subverts itself into like Ooh, okay we're going way too far into evilness yeah, there's, um, I mean, I don't have any research about uh, this particular psychosis, but I definitely have a sense that things like self-harm, so punk rock, rebellion, counterculture stuff has, you know, it's, that's a historical human perspective, nihilism, uh, whatever you want to call it, even stoicism, you could argue, you know, the stoics and fucking... 300 BC were like, look, you guys are fucking this all up. You got to live by a principle. So they would do the opposite, opposite things. But there's this degradation of people's personalities where they're yeah, self-harming and addiction, as far as we understand the stats, has been increasing. And I remember watching uh, this documentary probably 15 years ago about these kids in San Francisco. And, and, and this become a bit of a trope now, but you know, they're just like, yeah, I, I sit here, I'm homeless, I'm like 16, but I have to cut myself so I can feel something. You know, that, that sort of uh, disconnection from any purpose in their life is a, is a fascinating and frightening thing to think about. Uh, I think that's what this movie kind of brings us yeah. to, is that there's a positive sort of counterculture where, you know, you can strip yourself of things that are dragging you down. You can go and feel something, whether it's to cry or to get hit in the face or to physically interact. And then there's this slipping fully off the rocks and uh, diving into this self-destruction and self-harm where you can't come back, right? I have a feeling that that's intended. I think I think it's yeah, the purpose of the I do. movie. Yeah. yeah, I kind of just want to rewatch it again now after having this Let's conversation. This is nothing to do with the movie, but it popped into my head and I have to ask it. So, like, for you, as David Yun, 
do you feel like having a family, having a son has given your life meaning more so than you had, like even like, I don't know, 15 years ago? Or yeah. is that beside the point that you have to find meaning before you even go down the route of having a family? I don't know. I think in principle, the second, but I think just to quickly, like, so for example, uh, as people may or may not know, Helen and I have been together for 20 years this year. And what was interesting is leading up uh, towards our 10th anniversary, we decided maybe we should legally get married and well, we've been yeah. living together anyways. What was strange in that first moment is when we did that legal ceremony in a courthouse, I don't know, man, something felt like it changed, even though it was right. exactly the same. Like we still went back to the same house. We still have our same friends, but there's this uh, thing. So when we created Emerson and uh, when he arrived- It was in a vial. <laughs> there's <laughs> this- cauldron that you like- There's a context change, right? Because yeah. kind of like getting married, there's a- uh, I mean, maybe it's the same way we talk about masculinity, but there are suddenly new roles and responsibilities you have to confront and, and you have to confront yourself because, you know, you have definitions. So for example, with marriage, even with dating, you, you're going to have a definition of what it means to be a good partner, of what it means to be a good person, a good employee. That's going to be informed by your parents. That's going to be informed by your friends and your culture. Your coding. Marriage, parenting, all of that. Even work. Like, look at me. You, you of all people know, Kyle, I haven't held a, a job job in probably four or four and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happier now than I've ever been in many spiritual ways. But that vehemence and, to your point, sort of rebellious nature comes from how I've been informed about what I define a job to be. I feel like uh, it's something that I have to confront now, talking about denial and you know addiction and all this stuff. It's something I'm learning to confront now, but it's not a straightforward answer. You need to have values to make the next step of your life. When you make the next step, you get new values. You know, It's an ever-changing proposition. Maybe the biggest lie Hollywood and North American culture tells us is that you only have to make the right decision once and your life is fine. When yeah. the opposite is true, your life is always moving. I'm not going to be negative and say it's going to shit, but it's all constantly moving. So you always have to reassess where you are, who you are, and what your values are. And that's one of the biggest things that I'm not good at. I like to, I'm watching Fight Club and I'm like, I still believe this shit. Fuck materialism. And it's like, you know what? I'm 42. <laughs> Self-improvement is masturbation, right. damn it. And I'm like, I'm running every day. Like, I don't know. You know, it's like, uh, just gotta let it go. Elsa and Anna said it best. You just gotta let it go, man. Just, just gotta let it go. Where's that essay comparing Fight Club and <laughs> Frozen? Uh, we should write that. Yeah. We're done here. Okay. So the machinist told us we have to wrap up. I think we do need to end off then asking that question we often ask on this show is, do you think this movie is still culturally relevant? Yes. And I have a bias because uh, I'm from the 90s. I'm a heterosexual male and uh, I'm a recovering addict. So... I can't not love this movie. How's that for a double, triple negative, whatever it is? I know. If I, 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 were... th I, I think the same thing, though. I think this has a lot to say. And yes, like, again, going back to just the text, there's a lot of stuff that might seem antiquated nowadays as far as, like, what his office job is like. The, the fact that they even talk about cutting film strips and having different reels and, like, yeah, showing the goal. Yeah, burnout that's the on the top burns. right corner which does not exist anymore in filmmaking but like did exist back then like all that stuff doesn't really hold water now but i think the themes and what it's talking about a thousand percent are still relevant and we can talk about it. and we just spend an hour and 15 minutes talking about it 
You know, I have, I remember this one thing. Kids today, never mind not knowing what payphones are, they wouldn't even get the first clue that you can't call a public payphone back, right? I mean, just like little nuances like that are interesting. But I thought、uh, you could. Can't you do that? I thought you could do that. Isn't that why there's the number that's written on on the front of payphones? No, I mean I don't think so. I at least from、okay. my my recollection,、uh, you can't return a call to a payphone. There's、okay. going to be a number. Oh, to you're right. You could you couldn't star sixty nine it. I don't、no. think you can star sixty nine it. Yeah,、no. you're right. And,、uh, yeah, star sixty nine isn't even a thing anymore.、No. I don't think. They just、but. have call display. Siri will tell you. Never say that name in my presence again. The, not only who, but they'll tell you where they call from, who they are,、mm-hmm. who their family members are. There's an algorithm. You're in my contact list. Is fuck that guy. But, yeah.、Um, <laughs> well, let's. I try to. Make sure that's how I appear in all the contact lists I'm a part of. Well, I guess that means that we need to、uh, rate this film somehow. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a second. I think we need to pause just for a moment and discuss that there's many different ways that you can help support this podcast.、Uh, one of those ways is that wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on iTunes or some other podcast platform, if you can go and leave a review for us. It literally takes five seconds. All you have to do is go to that store of your choice, leave a review. It really helps、uh, as far as discovery goes. You can also tell people if you wanted to shout out on Twitter, Facebook, out your window if you have such a thing, and be like, "Hey, listen to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine," and then get the response of like, "What? Who are you?" Regardless, do that. It helps us out a whole heck of a lot. You can email us at Kyle and Dave vs the Machine at gmail dot com, and you can help support the show. By going to our Patreon page, which is linked into the show notes here as well,、um, so any of those things are available to you, and you can、uh, help us out immensely by doing any and all of those things. Now, with all that preamble, David, we are going to rate this film, and you can follow us on Letterboxd, the、uh, website that helps people track the films that they are watching. Letterbox.com/slash/kdvstm is how you can find us and see every movie we've talked about so far. I think this is 38. I think this is the 38th movie that we've watched here this year. For this means, podcast, probably watched a lot more for, movies. Well,、yeah. I I have. I'm in <laughs> triple digits. What would you rate this movie out of five?、Uh, well, obviously a five. But I have a quick thought, a dystopian、sure. Blade Runner thought. When you、oh, mentioned、no. Windows. How long before the algorithm has Facebook owning my window and I have to click an ad in order to open it? That's、mm. coming, right? I'm sorry to、oh, put、I'm、that、sure. idea into the machine's head, but、uh, how fucking creepy is that? <laughs> Anyways, yes,、uh, I'm. I have You're rating the five? five. Yeah, I have to give it a five. I I don't know what it is about me. I'm I'm so reticent of giving fives out, even though I gave like two in a row, I think, a few weeks ago. Anyways, well, you gave South Park a five, so you've already discredited any. I'm always yeah, I'm discredited. Yeah. You throw me off the show. I scratch out my name. It's just and Dave versus the machine. I'm rating it four point five. I think this is a really strong movie. I love it a lot. I do think that people have gotten into my head a little bit because I've seen a lot of articles here in recent years, a little bit pushing back on this film and the relevance that it has. But now that I have done it myself and rewatched it, I, d- I just think there's lots to talk about in this, and I'm probably going to be rewatching this movie throughout the rest of my life until I'm senile and create my own Tyler Durden to watch it with me. Just to that point, while I was researching it, there are philosophical like、uh, treaties almost based around this film. Like, sure, academics talk about this movie still.、Uh, they do not talk about message in a bottle. Well, I mean, they should. I mean, of. <laughs> The deep, rich text that that is "Message in the Bottle,"、uh, Dave. That means we have a tie. Okay. So this movie then is tied with Galaxy Quest. 
Would you rate this above or below Galaxy Quest? By the way, each of us rated this the exact same. (laughs) That's funny. I would put it above Galaxy Quest. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. I love Galaxy Quest, but I think that there's a lot more richness to this. That means then that Fight Club will enter our list at the number three position. Who's above it? Office Space? Office Space at number two, Matrix at number one. So our list is kind of coming along nicely here. You know what we should Uh, do is uh, review our ratings at the end of the year to see if we were too soft at the beginning and too hard at the end. We can talk about that off podcast. Well, let me push this button. Let's see what we are watching next week. (laughs) Well, this is very hilarious because we actually mentioned him already on this podcast. So we're going from one O-Tour to another O-Tour. Next week, we're watching Eyes Wide Shut. Ah, Kubrick. Kubrick, uh, yeah. group sex. Great. And, And group sex. And Tom Cruise, I mean, talking about cults. I always thought it was fascinating that Beck's father co-founded Scientology, but split from L. Ron Hubbard because L. Ron Hubbard's insane. So he's, uh, he's a proponent of Scientology, but not connected allegedly to Hollywood oh, Scientology. A splinter group. Hyperbaric chambers and fucking weird stuff going on over there. And, you know, good money. I look forward to watching it. I have actually not seen this. I've seen a bunch of Kubrick stuff, for some, but for some reason, I've never seen Eyes Wide Shut. I guess in the meantime, I'm, should I put like a, a stake on your eye, like in an old fancy cartoon? I was actually just going to comment about asking you why you have so many feathers up your butt. Don't kink shame me, David. David. <laughs>